Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hello and welcome to Undermine Season 4, Episode 19. Hey, episode 19. Hey, 19. The Cuervo Gold, the fine Colombian. Make tonight a wonderful thing. No, this isn't the show where fish covered Steely Dan's gaucho, but RJ and I would both love if they covered Steely Dan. This is episode 19 of Undermine, season four. Before we discuss whether this is my beautiful house or my beautiful wife, let me introduce my beautiful co-host for the day, <laughs> Osiris co-founder and HF pod host, RJB. Hi, RJ. Hey, Tom. That was good. I like our, our collaborative uh, planning for these episodes is getting more, more and more interesting. Creative um, and, and fun. Yeah. So today we're discussing Halloween 1996, the Halloween show that arguably, or maybe not arguably, changed Fish's sound the most. Would we get Fall 97 without Halloween 96? I don't know. And there's only one way to find out, which is to argue about it on the internet. But <laughs> before we do that, we're going to bring on a guest who was actually at this show, which is really exciting. I, I love this show and I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. But um, first, if you're enjoying what we're doing here, check out Osiris Premium on Apple, where you get ad-free podcasts, bonus episodes, and more. Thomas, tell us about our guest. 
I will. And I was also at this show, RJ. I don't know, don't know if you knew that. I I kind of assumed you were. <laughs> yep. That's great news. I, I haven't until until the COVID uh Halloween. I didn't miss one Halloween. So I was at every single Halloween. Um so uh a couple of shout outs. Some people that are listening. Hi, Kelly Morris out there in Portland, Oregon. And while I'm at it over there, uh a little south in Seattle, I want to say hi to David Steinberg. He's going to be on the show soon. Um, hi, Andrew Moxon in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And hi, Ben Colmery in, well, if I had to guess, I'm going to say you're in Alexandria, Virginia right now. Thank you all for listening and for your wonderful, helpful comments. Today's guest is a good friend of mine, Gerald Gottesman, and a good friend of Osiris. He's a writer, a lawyer, a Californian, and of course, a huge fish fan. He was there in the audience for this audacious, amazing show. And I was there down in Atlanta for another epic Halloween. And my situation, RJ, I don't know. I mean, I always think of you as the dude with young kids, but this kind of reminds me because my situation with young kids, actually, I didn't have kids yet on Halloween 96. Um, I had an almost three-year-old and a very pregnant wife. Uh, wow. at home. And I was lucky to be able to go. <laughs> um, yeah. But I carefully made sure that, uh, you know, and, and Lily is going to be listening to this, so she might not agree exactly with my wording. But I I thought if I didn't establish Halloween as a work day, you know, <laughs> uh, that I had to attend, I would lose Halloween forever. Um, as it turned out, I attended every single fish Halloween and had enough Halloweens with my kids to last a lifetime. <laughs> um, but enough about me. Gerald is in the waiting room, and I'm going to painlessly extract him now. And he should be appearing. There he is. Gerald Goddessman, hey. how are you? Gentlemen, hey, hey, how are you? I am doing great, and you look fantastic. How's California? Wonderful. Just got sunny again after an overcast morning, which is a rarity still. <laughs> yeah, the, the rain is rare, right? Uh, oh, yeah. no, you're in Northern California. I'm in Southern California. I'm in LA. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, so rain is rare. Um, right. Gerald, uh, you and I were in the building, in the Omni. Lucky, uh, lucky people. At this beautiful, amazing show. So uh. lucky to be there looking back. Please bring us up to date at this point in your fish fandom. Had you been following fish prior to the show? And was this your yeah. first Halloween? Uh, this was my second Halloween after Quadrophenia. I missed White Album. Um, and uh, I had been seeing them since 89. A uh, oh. bunch of shows. Uh, I was in a college, serious part of college and law school, so I didn't really tour. I only, I, But anytime they were within a couple hours of, of Washington, D.C., I would go see them. So like my first show was in uh, uh, D.C. and then in Baltimore the end of 89 and you know uh, i was swept up and enchanted and uh, love the guys from the get-go so um you know a bunch of friends uh, it, it was it was really a bunch of deadhead friends and that got me into them and that we started touring and seeing fish you know on the wreck uh, a bunch of those friends did make it up to glens falls and i was insanely jealous after hearing about the white album show uh that i had to go you know see them and i've tried to see every halloween since um the, you know, the one I missed was when they did Waiting for Columbus, which was the one I requested on the postcard before Glens Falls. So <laughs> never sleep on a show that you really intend to go to. <laughs> Gerald, um, I got to say, you, you mentioned you saw them in D.C. in 89, which I assume is this show that's 
December 6th, 1989 at the Roxy. Yep, at the Roxy. Well, just so you know, on fish.net, there's no known set list. So if you have one, you should share it. Or at least maybe wow. maybe you should put a review on fish.net and just, you know, say that, you know, tell, tell us your story. I was some serious alteration <laughs> substances. So, I mean, I know I saw a yem uh, and uh, I think a Mike's hydrogen. How's that for a set list, RJ? I think, <laughs> I think they played, I think they played yem. <laughs> yeah i mean it was all the typical stuff that that they were playing in, in bars it was yeah. just it was interesting because the crowd was uh some really disinterested people some a bunch of deadheads uh some people that had toured down from boston um but you know it wasn't a full house even in a small place that's incredible um yeah. okay let's jump to 96 this this show to me is is a more um, kind of like mature and advanced Halloween compared to 94 and 95. It's much more of like a complete show. The Remain in Light said it was another high, high bar that Fish set for themselves and, and completely cleared it. Um, the horns, the arrangements, the improv. What, um, I guess before we get into the specifics, like what what's your reflection on how this affected Fish's trajectory or, or what do you see this as like at that point in their career? Well, not to oversell it, but it completely changed their trajectory. It increased, you know, their abilities and their palate considerably. Uh, it really changed their sound for the next two years. Um, it was, well, like Remain in Light itself was the band, it was Talking Heads and Brian Eno's kind of white new wave funk version of Afro uh, funk and uh, African beats and polyrhythms uh, that they were getting into. And Eno in particular was getting into like long before Peter Gabriel and Paul Simon did, though they got a lot more credit for it later in the 80s. Uh, so they were, it was like rhythm, rhythm, rhythm and grooves, grooves, grooves for the, that entire album. Uh, so, and, and that was kind of a new thing for, for New Wave. Uh, and it was uh, sort of a disco-y influence, too. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Talking Heads went on to do more of that when they they were emu they were emulating Fela Kuti and uh, uh, Hugh Masekela and, um, uh, uh, and, and P-Funk and Parliament Funkadelic, really. And, uh, like, later in the Stop Making Sense tour, they, they brought on Bernie Worrell from, from P-Funk on keyboards to do more of that rhythm and layering that he was so good at. Uh, so Fish was, was, you know, they were, they were rock and they were, uh, you know, psychedelic improv and uh, they had mastered a lot of different tones and, uh, you know, put a lot, put a lot on their palate. But this was, again, rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. And I think Fishman said that, you know, on, on this album, every player and every instrument was played like percussion. That's why he particularly loved it. Um, you know, this, I think wasn't the first Halloween was, uh, sessions from fans. And, uh, the second one was some sort of vote via the Schweiss. I, I may be wrong about that, but this was the first Halloween that it was their own choice. And, uh, you know, Trey say, Tom, how old were you guys in 1980 when this, when Remain in Light came out? Uh, 16. I mean, you know, that's when music really hits you and you, you, take on your absolute favorite bands and music usually. So totally. Trey has said, I think Trey has said, you know, in 
in the, the fish bill that came out with it, uh, that he, it was one of the albums he, it was the album he listened to most and learned guitar from listening to. And it was one of his favorites. Um, but Page played, I think Page played the great curve in one of his college bands, the drop and, and Mike did, uh, Mike played, uh, talking head songs too. And, and like his high school band and, and fish said he knew it well too. So they were all into it. And this was their choice that instead of, a classic 60s rock band double album that you know everybody kind of knows by heart uh they wanted to do you know expand upon and go deeper into a single side album that was an american band and totally influential classic contemporary album you know to them yeah so it, you know it was a real great personal choice and um i remember going at like they everybody kind of knows everybody knows the white album songs and uh, a lot of people know quadrophenia and definitely know the work of the who but this was the one which they are prompted to put a fishbill out to let people read up and, and know something about this album exactly to all the really green younger fans going in so this has been a really great tradition too but the funny thing is i i starkly remember i don't know if you did too tom but when we went in and uh, right after the gates, there was somebody give people giving out the fish bill. My God, it got really depressed and quiet and people were not excited about it. They As were people like, were studying the uh, fish bill. Yeah, I guess that was, yeah, it was like a classroom. <laughs> it was really uh, uh, kind of unenthusiastic. I mean, even the fish heads knew that they played cities, you know, yeah. so they, knew they were playing cities at that point. Yeah. I think that was... That was the only fish track they were playing, uh, Talking Heads track they were playing then. <clears throat> but um, people were going, you know, weren't that excited about it. And I, uh, I think that's kind of, I've been in other Halloweens where that sort of happens. People are like, oh, it's oh, that. Yeah. It, yeah. And if it's not exactly what you wanted, it's not, it's not, you know, you go in there with a little bit of lower expectations or something, right. but that might be good because this over delivered, but uh, uh, you touched on this and you probably already answered this, but I wanted to, I wanted to just sort of emphasize you talked to, uh, and you gave us good background on the, on the album and how it was chosen and stuff. But in terms of a turning point in fish, like some people say that like velvet underground Halloween uh, they can hear a difference in fish from then on, or even in uh, Quadrophenia, they became a stadium band after learning how to play Quadrophenia. Um, this show gets singled out even more, though, as the turning point in their sound. And so many ways I've heard people say, you know, it, it changed them. And, you know, you 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 brought up their, you know, it opened up their palates to unusual rhythms and and filled their jamming arsenals with more weapons. But do you give the show that much credit? Because, uh, I mean, it was yeah. amazing. Okay. All right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the groove, groove, funk, funk, when Mike melded it with his kind of country western uh, stylings, is cow funk, which is the entire 97, 98 run. And, you know, people still cheer for it when they hear bits, you know, that kind of influence in the music today. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, influ it, it they were doing the Yem vocal jams, but they were doing it they began their vocals became more percussive and call and response and more layered stuff. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely a turning point. And, and there was a lot more of, of Trey and uh, Paige, you know, combining polyrhythms, 
um, during the jam. So it wasn't so much psych rock and improv, but kind of a slow and uh, they could go slow and steady, you know, beat, beat, beat. And, and they, they became more of a dance rock band too, yeah. which is a good thing. I mean, it yeah. shows people like to get down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So we're going to talk in detail about, about the, the remaining light set, of course, but the first set here is like I mentioned earlier, I just feel they feel, it feels like they're very comfortable and they're um, having a good time. And, and the, you enjoy myself, the, the weird sanity opener, a really good, you enjoy myself, which even has a good vocal jam. And then Reba is just beautiful. Um, Forbins with a good story. Like that first set just really just feels like a complete set and something that even at a, at a separate show would be, would be a really good, a really good show. What was the, what was the vibe in the room? Like after that first set for you guys? After, I mean, after the first set, it seemed to calm down again because it was uh, because people were, you know, not sure about the uh, remaining light set, but that just made it easy for me to run down to the floor and get, you know, smack dab in front of Mike. Uh, <laughs> it was, I mean, Talking Heads was my first concert ever in 80, in 84 at Meriwether. And uh, I loved that band. So this was thrilling. When I got this fish fill in my hand, I was doing cartwheels back when I could still do cartwheels. So, <laughs> uh, so it was a lot of anticipation uh, from the people that knew what they were getting into and sort of like a, sit back and let's see what they got from most of the people in the Omni, you know, yeah. it was a small arena. It was, it was packed. There was a, you know, a lot of that great concert energy was crackling throughout the whole place. You know, that, that was no different. It was definitely, you know, Halloween's are special concerts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they played, they've played so many shows in Atlanta and that's the only, only show at the Omni. Um, before or after, you know, it's, it's interesting, but that was... They tore it down the next year. They did. Yeah. They wow. rebuilt it, and was it called the Omni? Is it still? I, I don't know. I don't know what it's called now. Fish done, burned it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so our houses are in motion, so we should probably try to stabilize that, and we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back to talk about this talking headset. And we're back. We're talking about how fish burned down the house after this uh, Halloween. The Omni was gone. Um, but uh, RJ, take it away. Yeah. So, uh, Gerald, you gave a little bit of this this backstory, but I want to dig in a little bit, Tom, with you. You We mentioned that Remain in Light came out in 1980. This is the last album of theirs that Brian Eno produced. And Gerald went into this in detail about how it was inspired by a lot of African musicians and the polyrhythm, funk, electronics really considered to be one of the best albums of the 80s. Um, I was introduced to this album by this set, so I, I'm in a different different place from you guys. But Tom, what what's your background with this record? Um, so 
I think uh, Gerald touched on this a little bit, and and some of this is in that playbill that Gerald was holding that they handed out. But basically, um, Trey and I back in grade school and high school were very much into like progressive rock, uh, David Bowie, Genesis, King Crimson, Yes. And if you look into these bands' genealogies, certain names keep popping up. Brian Eno, a prodigious record producer, um, but also he was a collaborator and writer with David Bowie. Robert Fripp, a guitarist and founder of King Crimson, but also a musician on Peter Gabriel's albums. And all these people uh, also happen to love uh, producer Steve Lillywhite, who Fish had tapped uh, to be a producer of Billy Breathe's. Um, this gets involved, but you could basically argue that Brian Eno was the glue of a lot of those bands. And if not directly involved, seemed adjacent to so many things that Trey and I listened to back then. And one of the young bands that Brian Eno produced was the New York City band Talking Heads. And Remain in Light came out in 1980. And uh, it was just, it was groundbreaking. The guitarist Adrian Ballou provided a lot of those incredible guitar sounds and this was right when trey was really mastering guitar and he played those guitar sounds that blue makes in 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 that solo in uh born under punches over and over again it's like uh, and and i was saying i oh, know that's like a synthesizer or something and, and trey's like no 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 he's just doing that with his with the switches on the guitar and the switches on the amp and a foot pedal and and it's there's no effects he's just doing it and trey like showed me how he could do it with a playing the strings on the other side of the bridge and uh, it just wow. in incredible incredible stuff he he wanted to learn how to do it and um trey loved uh the album and totally loved adrian Ballou's playing and completely turned me on to talking heads music and a year later actually we went and saw adrian Ballou, um oh, yeah. but at as king crimson's guitarist at one of my first uh, rock shows ever, it was a King Crimson show in Princeton, and I think that was 1981 or 82. Um, it's all very incestuous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But I wanted you to know how much this album was in Trey's DNA already. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so, Gerald, the, when we get into the set two, I mean, the horns and the percussion additions are really pretty well suited for this sound. I mean, they kind of like perfectly complemented what they did, but I, I just think it's uh it's just such a fun set. I mean, the segue from Born Under Punches into Cross-Eyed is just perfect. Crosside is so good. Although I have to give a shout out to the eleven two ninety six Crosside, which showed the real potential of this song. But that that said, I mean, we we should talk about it in detail. But just those first two songs, I think, really are kind of representative of, of that whole sound. Well, it was like a perfect album to win over uh, reticent fans or or people that didn't know it yet because. The way it's structured itself is it's really fast and increasingly fast rhythms building up to once in a lifetime, which everybody knew because of the video on MTV and 
it had been in a, like two or three soundtracks of big movies. So everybody knew that song. So the three songs that build up to it are just get faster and faster, and they're really involved. Then Once in a Lifetime, then Houses in Motion is slower, but you know that was my favorite performance they did. Uh, where a lot of uh, Bellu, his parts were like Trey did some of them, and some of them uh, Gazaway and Grippo did on horns. It was it was just a beautiful, you know, arrangement of of that album of the Talking Heads album. Um, totally. And then seen and not seen is uh, at the end of Houses in Motion. Remember, Mike, they uh, I guess it would have been Sands, and someone else brought on an easy chair and put it down, plopped it down in front of uh, the you know the center stage, and uh, Mike went and sat in it, and he recited seen or not seen, just like Byrne does on the album. But it was so perfect for Mike. It was, it was just like one of Mike's poems from the Mike's Corner. You know, it was just weird and you know oddly stilted phrasing, and uh, it was just on point for him. It was a perfect choice. And, and Trey picked up his own bass, his bass, and you know played bass over it. So it was just, it was a beautiful version of a really kind of a weird track. He wonders if he too might have made a similar mistake. Then, you know, Listening Wind was absolutely beautiful. All the guys in the Fish traded off vocals, too. They all right. they had about two songs for each one, very democratic. And it was really, really great. Uh, and then, you know, it ended with The Overload, which is, you know, a strange droning song that, you know, broke down into chaos, just like the end of the White Album Halloween. Like, yeah. a lot of people thought Fishman would get naked again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God that didn't happen. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, so it was, it was great. They had everybody on board and, and following along and really won over, you know, by once in a lifetime and if not before. So that was really cool. It's, That's awesome. It's a good time for me to say that, you know, uh, they tend to retain a song or two. Uh, in their in their repertoire after a Halloween and and while cross-eyed has turned into the perfect fish cover to this remaining it remained in the spotlight so to speak um but I I would have loved it if born under punches and or once in a lifetime survived well, alongside great curve. alongside oh, that, true yeah. great curve yeah, any of them could really should or could be in the repertoire I guess we can't be too picky but when you think about uh other Halloweens you could say uh while my guitar gently weeps from the white album i think fish right. has play, played that several yeah. times drown from quadrophenia i think is the obvious one there rock and roll yeah. from velvet underground loaded sweet uh, game and the ocean from from quadrophenia a lot oh. of them they're, they're giving short shrift to remain in light damn it right. <laughs> yeah. loving cup from exile although they played that before no, they were playing that exile. before though yeah, yeah but still yeah. that still counts i think and it still a, goes shine, with... a, shine a light from exile okay counts. All it right. still goes yeah. for, you know, chilling, thrilling and sci-fi soldier and 
Like there, you know, a couple of those songs and even Moon Age Daydream from right. Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. But True. yeah, we need we need more. If you guys you know, are another need influences that they need more. It seems like they lifted <laughs> the way that Burns had they wrote the lyrics for this album, which was just sort of nonsense, spur of the moment, but then repeated, repeated, repeated. And that's pretty much the way they said they wrote the Casgold Vlock lyrics too. You know, if not the sci-fi soldier ones too. You know, so it's just kind of a when they don't have Tom around, they go to the desperate measures of aping other people's techniques and, uh, you know, with mixed success. And they put on weird uh, outfits. Right. <laughs> when they're wearing other costumes, it has a residue. It has an influence. There was when they did David Byrne hosted sex sessions at West 54th. I think yeah. maybe I, sometime in the two, early 2000s, Fish was a guest. And he interviewed all of them from the bumpers of the show. And uh, remember, they went on and on about how much they loved Remain in Light. They gave, you know, gave a bunch of stuff and, you know, Byrne was loving it. And uh, Fishman said, you know, we spent we spent over a year in your head, you know, getting it, getting in David Byrne's head and playing the Remain in Light. You know, they said it left a lasting imprint on, you know, the way they play. Yeah. So. Well, so I feel like the set three is is worth discussing too. Sometimes it's an afterthought in Halloween or New Year's Eve shows, but this is it's sort of an evolution or an extension of the Giant Country Horns shows from the yep. '90s. You know, Absolutely. the brother is good. 2001, the simple is amazing. You mentioned this earlier, Gerald, but for some fans, if they don't play Zeppelin or Hendrix, people are going to be disappointed at the end. But were were people pretty psyched by the end of the show? Did people think it was going down as a classic show? Or do you think, do you, yeah, what was the feeling like? I think it felt that way, definitely by the by the simple. I mean, because the, the Brother 2001 maze was all stellar. You, you got to say it's Parazzo. Uh, he and Fishman worked so well together. And Parazzo was so talented and so excellent on the uh, all the percussions that it just drove it drove everything really forward and added it added another rhythmic layer to everything. So some of these songs just ex exploded. You know, Simple wasn't that old yet, so uh, you know went in some great new directions already on this one. Yeah, some great, people really have great. problems with Jesus Left Chicago. But like, there's no arguing with what the horn players brought to that. It was insane. And then there were like six or seven covers aside from Remain in Light you know, throughout the show that were all good. So all those people were satisfied, I think, as well. It, it was it was a party by the end of the show. It, you know, people get tired by the third set also, but they, yeah. they were playing so well, I so observably I, and audibly well. Yeah. 
that uh, I don't think there was an unhappy soul. I, I agree, and 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 your point about the uh, and and I'll echo it because I was there and I remember this being exactly true. Having Carl Perazzo on, and then the horn players on, and having them essentially most of them stay uh, for the for the last set really kind of kept the party going, and uh, everyone appreciated how amazing Carl was, and and also you know yeah. what the horn players added to everything. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And then you can see the influence also in particularly Trey, because, you know, two years after that, he started Tab. And he said that that was he wanted to have another kind of Afrofunk polyrhythmic fella Kuti like band of a large yeah. ensemble on stage, you know, where everybody kind of plays percussively. And damn it, he did that. Yeah, damn it, he Tab did. Has really <laughs> evolved into. Yes. It's a really good point, and I think that did affect you know the 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 emergence of Tab and just bringing this kind of ensemble together. It's really it's man, what a great show! And I got to say again, the simple from set three is just simple. Ninety six was a great year for that that song, but this was just what a great uh what a great way to end end this this show um, with that set. But okay, so this is the last Halloween we're going to talk about during this season of Undermine. We may talk about Halloween in depth in another season, but. How do you both think this stacks up? If you were to to rank Halloween shows, where does this where does this rank on the list? Um, I have my own list, which I don't really want to go through because I'll get yelled at on the internet. But I, I will if I'm forced <laughs> to. But I, I think for me, it's it's I think it's number one um, for me. And I'm just curious, Gerald, what where does my, this fall my, for uh, you? Let or, me go, go ahead, first Tom. because because mine's easy. Um, I can't do a whole list, but I can tell you my top three, and I can't choose among them. Um, Exile on Main Street, Ziggy Stardust, and Remain in Light. Those are my top three, and they fish blew me away so much. Those albums are life-changing to me, and those shows to me are fish at their very best. So I'll never, ever choose, but those are my top three Halloweens. How about you, Gerald? Those are my top three, along with the Waiting for Columbus, but I didn't see it live, so I have mm. to dock at some points. Uh, but Remain in Light, I think of the three is is number one. Easily, yeah. you know, a top album for me of a top band for me played by another top band for me. So well, you know, it was already so well. a beautiful, perfect gem of an album, really well balanced, amazingly well played. And Fish did their thing where they expanded it by, you know, 30 or 40 percent, you know, to each song in length and, you know, in, in different details. It was beautiful. I hope uh, David Byrne heard it and liked it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really do too. Do you, okay. So we talked about this on the Halloween 94 episode, but you know, fish kind Wait, of. What are your top three, RJ? Oh, oh, sorry. Okay. Uh, Remain in light. Number one, I think chilling thrilling is number two. Um, just because those, <laughs> okay, those internet attack, RJ, those, those grooves have, have, have just lived on in a way that is just, I think really awesome. Um, number three is Exile, um, and then and then for me at least, and then we go go from there. Um, yeah. Acceptable. I think that um, there is <laughs> there is some like, well, I don't know if this is actually true, but on the Halloween '94 episode, we talked about how Fish kind of invented the musical costume, or at least brought it more to the mainstream. And now, as um, as our guest on that show, Aaron Stein, who sees like a show every night, so he knows. On Halloween in New York City, you can go and see one of 20 Halloween cover sets by by bands. And now Fish has taken that 
and You'll turn it around. You'll be going to Goose this year, right, RJ? I, I will be, wait, for New Year's or for? Wherever they are. I, I, I can't comment on that on this fish podcast. It's not allowed. It's in the contract. We're not okay. allowed to talk about Goose. Um, I bet. <laughs> but fish also then turn this back around. So now they, they make up albums that they cover. Do you guys do you guys think they'll ever go back to basically will I ever see physical graffiti or will we ever see Hendrix? Like, will they ever go back to covering another artist's album for Halloween? What if they cover a goose album that Goose hasn't written? That would be very <laughs> unusual. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Can you say that? Uh you know what? Yes, it's in their arsenal. I mean, th- they were doing classic albums at first and then this album kind of blew open the doors to more possibilities and then they did an album that didn't exist in the past an album that was just existing in the present an album that from the future that doesn't actually exist so they could take it anywhere and and they did you know they did Ziggy Stardust in the middle of that too so they can always you know you know go with that option if they feel like it I agree I think with I think with I think with a guest singer um, they they might be able to tackle albums that they might find out of reach right now. Like yeah. a, a favorite favorite album of the fan base and, and of Trey and the band, um, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis. I think they would need sort of a singer performer, you know, maybe Peter Gabriel himself uh, to do it. Um, and I know actually Trey asked him at one point and he yeah. said he, he always looks forward. He doesn't look back. Um, but uh yeah zeppelin physical graffiti i think it's like sort of an obvious one that they need to do uh yeah. so yes i've much experienced is still le- you know left on the table there's you know there's so many i vote so for many. i vote yes my vote is yes <laughs> <laughs> but, they're not, but they're not under pressure to do so no which is why they'll do it right they're gonna yeah, surprise yeah. us yeah, yeah exactly and and fish always surprises us and uh we always that's why we remain the happiest fan base of any band ever. What, <laughs> Gerald, before we Gerald, before we <laughs> let you go, um, what would be your number one if you if you were to be able to choose any album for Fish to cover? Um, what would be your cho- your choice at this point? Uh, the the trite over pick Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, just because it's yeah, that's it's a favorite one. album too. That's the one, and I might even say I might even say Physical Graffiti just because. I want to hear them. I want to hear them play some of those songs, but, but, but I, yeah. I like to be surprised too. So it's, yeah. you know, there's no losing. And, and I, I bet, I bet RJ that you're, you're on the, in the Zeppelin camp there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, physical graffiti in, in that it's a double album. It's my favorite. It's my favorite Zeppelin album. I, I, oh man, it would just be, it would be wonderful. Although, you know, at this point they've played so many Zeppelin songs that, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm I'm okay with them continuing to just make their right. own albums because it, <laughs> it introduces so much new music, and I do think new material pushes them forward creatively. So that obviously is a. What do you is think a, is harder to learn a new album and do arrangements, or to throw together you know an album of original material? I got I think, it. I think it's less risky to create their own because the, then there's no yardstick, there's no ruler to compare it against. You know. True. Sure. I think that's it for us today, folks. Thank you very much, Gerald, for, for wow. joining us. Um, yeah, really, really nice to really have fun. you. Yeah. And uh, thanks to everyone out there for listening. Our next stop is actually our last stop in 1996 out in Nevada somewhere. 
the band's last show before the 96 New Year's run. Now oh, I and subscribe to Osiris uh, podcasts. <laughs> Thank you, Gerald. And she would want you to say it. Thank yeah. you so much. And uh, since Everyone you said there. it, I don't need to say it. And we'll see yeah. you in a few days. And until then, do things that are fun. Osiris. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.